Hi, welcome. Yes, it's the film file. Yes, the film file. And as you know, we're singing along to that theme tune every week. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And we're back for another show for film geeks, by film geeks. And yes, that's us, the film geeks. So, Andy, how's your week been? It's been a week. It's been it's been all right, I suppose. Um, I, I've done pretty much the same as what I've normally done. I've still I'm still lacking in getting some video content out there, but I've got distracted with Twitch streaming. Oh right, streaming my gameplay of things, and I, even though no one's actually watching me, I don't care. I'm enjoying streaming. <laughs> I'm enjoying putting my bad skills at playing games out there. But also, I, yeah, there's been the usual things like me Toss. Which has good been, show, good show again this week. It was oh. a really good turnout this week, really good banter, and um, also been participating in the hashtag HTOT, which is Horror Talk on Tuesdays, which is run by someone else. Last night we spoke about Stephen King, and obviously, you know, I was I was definitely going to be involved in that. And it's one of them that when when you answer one of the questions, you know, when you answer a question to something and you feel so smug in the slight wit that you put in there <laughs> that only fans of the series will actually get. Well, we were asked what the favorite character. Of that King's come up with us. So I said, you know, my, and I gave all the names, Walter O'Dim, Walter Paddock, uh, Martin Broadcloak. Yes, I'm talking about the one, the only, Randall Flagg. And then followed it with, closely followed by Roland Deshane. See what I did there? Ah. <laughs> and no one got it. <laughs> well, I, I, I should have joined in. I would have got it. <laughs> have you felt that this month, this January that's just gone... Uh, I think today's like, isn't like today the, the 38th of January? Because it just lingered on. I mean, I had a particularly busy January uh, doing doing educational stuff, um, some self-employed, did tax stuff. It just, January just felt really, really heavy. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad to be out of it. I feel like we're moving forward. But January just lingered for so long. And I've just been so busy. January was... January was the thirteenth month of twenty twenty. Yeah, absolutely. It just it just didn't want to go away, uh, and I was looking at a couple of projects that I'm trying to get started for this year. And last time I corresponded with with a couple of people I needed to be talking to was in in the first week of January when you know you, you think you're full of beans, and, and I've got in touch today because it's just what was going on. I mean, I I complete I completed my Pixar project. Oh, by good. The end of January. Good. Um, my aim was to get everything watched by the end of the month and I did it I did it on the final day I got the last few shorts slotted in there and I've now ranked them all on Letterboxd and it's safe to say that Coco Toy Story 3 Wally and Finding Nemo are the top tier they're the top rated ones for me they're the ones that hit my heart right in the right place and the Good Dinosaur and Cars 2 sorry guys you're down at the bottom do you know Good Dinosaur is the only uh, only Pixar film along with the Cars sequels that I've not seen I've seen everything else uh, you've not really missed much. I mean, Cars 3 isn't bad. Cars 3 is like uh, Rocky Balboa. It's, okay. the aging, it's the aging has-been sports star who's now getting beaten by all the young upcomers who just wants to prove himself one last time. And it works, but it's only telling the same kind of story as what we saw in the first Cars. Right. Cars 2 is a mess. Cars 2 is an absolute disgrace and should never be made. They tried to make a spy genre, and I get that they wanted to do something different, but oh, they didn't have to do that. And it focuses too much on Mater. And on the subject of Mater, never, ever put yourself through watching all the short animations of Mater because I put myself through that mess. <laughs> you didn't have to do it. There wasn't a bigger cause, if, if that helps. 
the most fun that I had with it was writing up little mini reviews for each of them. And you can slowly see my sanity slipping <laughs> as it goes through the series. Uh, but yeah, it was it was fun to go back and revisit because some of them, I've, Ratatouille, I don't think I've seen since it came out. I love Ratatouille. I've got a, a soft spot, big soft spot for Ratatouille. That is in my four and a half star bracket. It doesn't quite hit the five stars that the four that I've mentioned have, but it's there in the four and a half. And there's a few in the four and a half. When you look at it and you look at the list without the ratings, I've got Onward quite low down. Oh, that's wow. not to say that Onward is a bad film. Far from Onward it. Is a, Onward is a three and a half star. It's just that so much Pixar is so highly regarded that it pushes something like that, which it struggled for the first half of the film. It's only the back half that redeemed it. That right. It doesn't have that consistency. And so it lost a few points because of it. But it's still a great film. And you know what, folks, if you're listening to this, if you feel that Andy's not hitting the mark, let us know. Uh, and talk about letting us know, it's time for us to let you know what's happening in today's show. Well, we've got the usual feast of news, reviews, chat, more chat, and probably some more chat. We'll be looking at the career of the great Gene Hackman, who had a significant birthday this week. And of course, before anything else, the man known as Andy Meakin has been scouring the internet to find you all the news in this sequence of events that we always call proudly the news. So uh, let's let's go straight out the gate with a bit of positivity. And you know what my positivity is? You know what my positivity is this year? Yeah, be kind to Zach. Be kind to Zach. Uh, Zach Snyder's been revealing some more little snippets um, of clips for his Justice League, which has a release date of the middle of March now. Yeah, I heard that. What, what's happening with, with our release in the UK on this? Any any news? I've heard conflicting re- reports about that it's going to be available on Sky Cinema. I've heard that it's going to be uh, just a free-for-all on, on all streaming packages uh, that you can pay for. No one seems to know yet. No, there's no confirmation yet. It's all speculation. I wouldn't be surprised if it follows the same suit as Wonder Woman did Yeah, when it went to all platforms because they want to get this out to as many people as possible and they don't want to limit it to an audience unless Sky pays them a substantial amount of money to keep it. Uh, but with the marketing, and this is one thing that I've noticed with the marketing, and I think this is why Zach is starting to flood the market with lots of images and little teasers. HBO Max don't seem to be pushing it. Is that because they don't have to? I wonder. I mean, I, I, it's just purely speculation. It's It's got its market, and, and its market will, will stream pun intended, to HBO Max if they're not there already, as we saw with uh, we saw with Wonder Woman. Well, the thing is with this is that whilst Zack Snyder's Justice League has its target audience, which is the ones who campaigned to get it, and they will go and see it anyway. General public, your average Joe Blogs, doesn't identify this as being any different a film than the Justice League that we had a few years ago, except they just see it as a director's cut, which usually means one or two extra scenes. And they hated that film. So they're not going to tune into this one. So they should be marketing it to say, no, this is a completely different film. Now, because HBO Max aren't doing anything, Zack Snyder obviously is running his own little campaign of information. As he's done all the way through, to be honest, hasn't he? Yeah, and this time around, I mean, he he released an image which is a Joker tease because he's shot a scene with Joker in there. And this is basically the first time that he's confirmed, yes, this has all been done. And it's a playing card in focus in the forefront of the screen being held by a hand and out of focus behind is like the image of the Joker. Kind of like when Heath Ledger 
was revealed. Yeah, I remember that campaign. We had exactly the same image. That's what Zach's doing here. He's paying reference to an earlier campaign to go, Joker's popping up in this. We know from what Zach said that it's only one or two minutes at most. It's only a small moment in the film that he wanted in there. Now, the Zack Snyder fan base are saying that this means that um, Joker's got a huge part in the film. It doesn't. He's just paying reference and homage to things. And he's creating some kind of marketing to make sure that people who aren't immersed in all the background of this Zack Snyder's version of the film will see the image of the Joker and go, oh, I don't remember Joker being in the film. Maybe it is different. That's what he's releasing these for. So kudos to Zach. He's, he's, he's doing the marketing that HBO maybe should be doing. He's trying to get stuff out there that we haven't seen in that Joss Whedon version. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because these sorts of films, and what I, what I mean by films that are, that are generated by a fan base, don't have a tendency to step outside of, of the fan base because yeah. general audiences have either seen the film or, or they're not bothered about an extra 20 minutes worth of uh, uh, worth of additional footage. And I, and I say the same for things like Alien, for instance, because I've been yeah. on a bit of an Alien kick recently. Uh, no one was particularly bothered about the extra additional footage that was in it, but it was all legendary to us who were, uh, were, were big fans of Ridley Scott's film. So to us it made a, it made a huge difference, but to the general public, no, it doesn't. That's nothing that's nothing to take away. And I'm I'm sensing your positivity now with, with Zack Snyder that I've uh, I'm a little shocked by and uh and, and almost like strangely reassured by as well. <laughs> but I do think there's uh, you're absolutely right. There there is that element that people are are gonna have to be convinced this is a as a is a brand new film and and to me, that's why it would have worked better as a miniseries, because I think people have tuned into it in its own light. But sitting through four hours of, of, of fan service, listen, we're fans, and, and I'm not meaning anything derogatory by that, but it is fan service in the same way that we can sit through WandaVision yeah. and, and I have to stop and go, oh, that was a, a reference to such and such to my other half. And uh, and we will talk about one division later in the show. <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking about that later. But yeah, you know, th- those those reference points are there for fans. And and, and let's remember that, that fans are, are rabid about these things while the the majority of the public aren't. Yeah, I'm, ca- I'm looking forward to watching what Zach's version of it is. Yeah, I'm not a fan of what he did with the DC Universe, but I think it's only fair to see how he wraps it all up. I think it's only fair to give it a shot and to go in with an open mind. I appreciate that it's a chance for him to show his vision. Because even though I didn't like what he was doing with DC, whenever I see people, I mean, it's usually on Facebook comments that all the people who don't get what this version is start chiming in. And they're all saying, we've already seen this film. It came out three years ago. It's like, I feel like I'm now arguing on behalf of the Zack Snyder <laughs> fan base in having to point out to you that you haven't seen this film. I, I understand where you're coming from, but it's not the same film. And it's it's like I've almost become one of Zack Snyder's fans as a result. You're an acolyte. Who would have ever thought I, it? I, I, I won't be starting a hashtag campaign. No. <laughs> that's, that's not going to be happening. I don't, I don't agree with having to pander to a fan base in order to bring it out. And like I said, I would have loved to have seen the rough cut. I'd have been fine with that because I've seen rough cuts and I get I can get the feeling for it. I understand why they didn't want to do that because most people would look at a rough cut and so say it's been sabotaged. But let's see. Uh, when it comes out next month, we will find an opportunity for at least one of us to see it. And um, Scott has also, I've been speaking with Scott. and Oh, Scott, and, who used to be on this program, but uh, we've not seen yeah, him he, he's he's oh, He's basically booked himself in that once he's seen it, he will come onto the show. 
to oh, talk fantastic. about it because he's our DC fanboy and uh, he's the guy who basically knows the characters inside out. So it'd be great to see him back on the show for that. Look Excellent. So what else have we got? So from one fan thing to another fan thing, and we're both fans of Book Rogers. We are. We mentioned this a few weeks ago with, with great excitement that Book Rogers was making some kind of a comeback in some kind of a form, whether that was going to be a TV series or a movie. But I believe things have got complicated. There's a lot of complications. There's more complications here than Avril Lavigne has. <laughs> We've mentioned before about it that the reboot was happening. The reboot has been confirmed by Legendary to be a TV series. And George Clooney, as producer, who is also apparently thinking about starring within it, oh. which I can see that. I could see Clooney as in a in a Book Rogers role. I I couldn't see him as Book Rogers. Um, I can. <laughs> interesting enough, only because I think he may be a little bit too old uh, for it. But yeah, but he's he's one of those people who doesn't seem to be visibly aging. No, true. I'll give you that. In addition, though, whilst Legendary are working on this project, whatever form it ends up taking, Skydance have also announced that they've made a deal with the Nolan Estate who hold the rights to the character to work on a film which has caused a bit of a legal complication with the estate and legendary because legendary are basing the fact that the character of book rogers they see as being in the public domain because the copyright for his first outing was let slide in the 50s right i would have thought he would have been out of public domain well as long as if the estate, if the estate continued to copyright everything, then everything would be fine. But it's the same kind of situation as what you've got with Sherlock Holmes, that there's some things that are held in copyright and some things that aren't. Right. And Legendary believe that because they're taking his first outing and they're working on that as the starting point and basis, they've got all the rights to do what they want. However, the estate is turning around and pointing out that the nickname Book wasn't coined until later on in the series. Okay. Originally, he was just known as Anthony Rogers. That's right. And so Legendary can't use the name. And this, again, is similar to the Sherlock Holmes thing that you saw with Enola Holmes. Yeah. That he said that there were certain aspects of his personality that weren't present in the books that they had rights to. And so it's caused a bit of a clash. Legendary are disputing the claim. They say that they've got the rights secured. They've checked into legalities and they can use the book name. Whereas the estate is saying, well, no. Uh, the only ones who have the rights to the book Rogers name is Skydance. And they've made they've paid us this money. So you need to sort out what you're doing it's a filthy business that one I might say there'll be a payout somewhere along the way which will clear all this up but at this point in time it looks like it's going to end up heading to the courts it looks like as they say the book doesn't stop there oh i bet you've been rehearsing that all afternoon oh, oh and this is a, this is a punch my own arm moment it's like hey oh uh, but yeah so book rogers is coming it's potentially coming in two separate projects But whether it's going to be Anthony Rogers in the 25th century or Book Rogers is another matter. Keep posted, folks. We'll let you know. Ruby Rose, uh, that that great actress who (laughs) uh, landed one season in that woman. Yes, which which is, um, I believe, has already aired to to less than positive reviews. (laughs) (laughs) Less less than positive viewers, I think. (laughs) Well, she's replaced Elliot Page for the underdog comedy One Up which is currently in production in Toronto. She's set to star alongside Paris Berelk, who's in the lead role. The film focuses on a young woman named Valeria Lee, who's played by Berelk, who quits her college esports team after being gaslighted by her male counterparts. However, she discovers that by doing so, she would lose her scholarship unless she can manage to exploit a loophole, find a coach and assemble a whole new varsity caliber team to get into the finals. 
this is as generic a sports movie set <laughs> as in college find. as you can find. This has been done millions of times, but this time it's esports. Uh, Rose plays the professor who she turns to to act as the coach. And she's also a best friend. And the former ragtag women's team set to take down the male-orientated esports. <sighs> it, it sounds very familiar. I think when you uh, when you said act as a coach... I'd, I, I had to bite my tongue, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it sounds like the most generic of generic stories. And it sounds like it's populated the most generic of actors now. Now that Elliot Page has left, who is possibly too good for that kind of story. Yeah. I'm not really keeping my eye out for this one, but you know, at least Ruby Rose has found something to keep her career kind of going. Um, so coming off the back of, of uh, acting skills with Ruby Rose, <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> the Golden Globe nominations for 2021. Is there such a thing as 2021? First, answer me that. Is that far too philosophical a question? Well, I, th- I think in answer to that question, I think we're still, like we said at the head of the show, <laughs> We're still in 2020. This is 2020 and a half. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Golden Globes nominations dropped literally while we're on air. Fantastic. We could go through the full list, but it will take us a whole show to dissect every element of them. So I've had a look through them. There's there's quite a few things that were obvious and there's a few surprises within there. Things that stood out for me. Um, I saw Anya Taylor-Joy's name pop up for her part in Queen's Gambit, which is well-deserved. Excellent. That's a great TV series. Uh, best TV drama has Mandalorian, Lovecraft Country, and Ozark in the running there. Which Those are interesting choices. That's three sol- solid choices, but very different choices as well. And in addition in that category, you've got The Crown, which, come on. Come on, it's past its sell-by date now. Yeah, it's still got... hugely successful, though. Um, I mean, it's not my cup of tea, and, uh, and never will be. But you know, there is there's a big audience for it, and it's a big international audience. And and you, when you look at it, and you've got you've got the kind of talent involved from from a cast wise. You know, people like Olivia Colman, um, Helena Bonham Carter, Gillian Anderson. You know, those those are really big hitters. So I think, yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm not a big fan. I can I can see it in there. The biggest surprise in that category is Ratchet has made its way in. Yeah, well, we talked about Ratchet when it first started. I just thought it was style over substance. Yeah, it, it, it's just American Horror Story mm. all over again. And that's not what we wanted from a Nurse Ratchet film uh, no. series. But anyway, um, in the limited series category, Queen's Gambit's in there as a limited series. And the Small Axe series of films is within there. My heart and hope is on the Small Axe ones getting the award on that one. Um, and I've also noticed my favourite in there is uh, the fabulous Schitt's Creek, nominated for Best Television, Musical or Comedy, uh, acting nominations for Catherine O'Hara, well-deserved, Eugene Levy and Dan Levy, uh, oddless, uh, which was oddly listed in the supporting category despite being, well, he's the showrunner. <laughs> so, uh, so that's good to see. What about movies? It's still a show that I need to get around to watch. Oh, you must. I hear so many good things. Uh, in the film categories, in the best picture, which is a musical or comedy, Borat made it in there. All oh, right. Hamilton. Hamilton's a curious one because effectively they were just filming the stage show. And I get that it's impressive. I get that, get that it was directed to be shown on the screen as the stage show. But it's still just the stage show on screen. I, I agree with you. I know you know it was one of my uh, favorite things uh, when we did a neat things about it. Yeah. Uh, sometime in the hazy days of, of 2020 and I, I loved it 
but it is just a recording of a stage show and i wouldn't see it as a motion picture so that's debatable um, i've I know- seen a lot of debate on that cat- category online uh, since it dropped with pe- some people agreeing with us saying like mm, is it really a film others saying well they, they shot it to be shown at a cinema so it's a film so whether everyone turned around saying so if i shot a metallica concert on a camcorder to put on a big screen would that be classed as a, a film no mm. it wouldn't It'd be a recording of a concert yeah so I don't get it, but I get the impact that the, the performance had. Oh, and it's it's phenomenal. I mean, it absolutely is phenomenal. And three that I've not seen are in that category. Music, The Prom, and Palm Springs. Now, The Prom is an interesting one, because that's the one that um, James Corden is in. It is, and we're not fans, really, of James Corden. And James Corden has obviously got some fans in the Globes, because he's been put forward for Best Actor in a Music or Comedy. And, you know, I, you can't take away... Uh, well, you can separate the, the, the what we like about his talent and 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 what we like think about him as a performer. I mean, I'm not keen of him as a as a chat show host, a, uh, an actor, etc. But you know, I've heard great things about his stuff that he does um, on, on stage, uh, and he's supposed to be very very good in the prom. A friend of mine absolutely rated it beyond belief; thought it was fantastic, and and I, and I trust their judgment with the drama category. Uh, Mank has made it into the best picture drama. Uh, Nomadland so. has made it in there. Trial of the Chicago Seven, Promising Young Woman, which I'm so desperate to see. Me too. And The Father. So that sounds like a solid category. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is in the running for best screenplay for Chicago Seven, and Sasha Baron Cohen is up for best supporting actor for Chicago Seven, and also best actor for Borat in the comedy category. I, I do like that uh, Chadwick Boseman received a posthumous nomination from his turn Mar in Mar Rainey's Black Bottom. Have you seen that yet? I've not. It, it's one of them that I've got it on my shortlist, and I just want to be in the right mood for it. Yeah. I don't want to approach it in a lacklustre, oh, well, there's nothing else to watch. I want to be ready to watch it. Yeah, I get you. I'm, um, I'm in the same boat with you on that one. Motion Picture Animations sees Crudes 2. Crudes 2? Really? Onward. Over the Moon, I loved Over the Moon. I know you I did, yeah. Very creative. Uh, Wolf Walkers, which I've still not seen, but I so desperately want to see because I'm loving everything that I've seen about it and I'm loving everything I'm hearing about it. And obviously, and let's be honest, it's probably going to win, so. Yeah, I mean, um, Onward is 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 my favourite out of that list. Saying that, I've not seen Crudes and I've not seen uh, um, Wolf Walkers, even though I know it's available on Apple TV. So yeah, they're, the, they're the picks from looking across the plethora of categories on there. The full list can be found with a quick Google search online if anyone's interested. But as you can imagine, debate around all this has started online. Twitter just went mental as it within does. five seconds of it, all the announcements with all the people who for the past couple of months have been saying, everyone's film opinion is just an opinion. Everyone is uh, <laughs> subjective. And just because you like something doesn't mean everyone else has to like it. And now saying, I can't believe that film that I liked hasn't been put forward. Yes, yeah. The Globes is just a subjective opinion from a group of people. It does not necessarily reflect that these are definitely got to be your favourite films. There's many times that I've disagreed with choices across all the awards, but you know what? It's a it's a celebration of the industry. See it as that. And whilst I don't agree with, I mean, like I said, James Corden, I I don't quite get it, but. There's a lot of names within there that you do agree with. And just because your favourite film of last year isn't listed doesn't make the Globes any less important. Or your favourite film any less important. So we mentioned Hamilton <laughs> in that uh, in that list. And um, and we know that Hamilton is a stage play. 
you see what I'm doing now? I'm building into a into a nicely sequenced and Ooh, highly designed segue. segue. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I hear that Wicked is uh, is coming to the big screen. Yes. Now, Wicked has been in various states of pre-production for the better part of the last decade. Up, uh, Stephen Doldry was attached to the Billy Ed- Elliot director for quite some time, but he left the project last year after the years of stalled starts basically made him go, look, if we're not starting it now, I'm off. He's now been replaced with John M. Chu, who gave us Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, not not the choice I would have uh, instantly have gone to, but that's not uh, any detriment to John M. Chu's directing. Um, I, I'm not a, a huge fan of, of stage musicals, saying that I've just uh, told you how much I loved Hamilton. But Wicked yeah. is one of those that I would really, really like to see. Oh, I love Wicked. I mean, it, it, the the stage show was inspired by the Gregory, Gregory Maguire novel, although whereas the novel is very much an adult-focused retelling of the Wicked Witch of the West story, uh, warts, sex, and all, the musical stage version was more in tone with the classic Wizard of Oz film and so works as a side piece to the Wizard of Oz. And if they're ad- I don't know whether they're ad- adapting this as a stage show performance or, as I'd like them to do, do it like a Wizard of Oz do it as a film drawn from the stage show. I would imagine that's the route they'll go somehow. I, I... Yeah, I mean, I've seen it live twice, oh, and right. I'd love to see it again. I absolutely love the whole show of it. I think the music's fantastic. I think the comedy's in there. The charm's great. It's such a good telling of the flip side of The Wizard of Oz. And I'm I'm excited for the film, and I'm excited now that John M. Chu's attached because I did... I, I was late to the party with Crazy Rich Asians. I only got around to watching it last year. And it was one of them that when I watched it, it was like, why did I not watch this when it came out? Well, there you go. Um, highly recommended uh, from uh, our man in Broadway himself. <laughs> our man in Broadway. Um, shall we Shall we talk about Disney Plus? Well, I think we should because we've got a, a bit of Disney Plus news and I think it would only be fair that we share it. Because Disney Plus have revealed the content drop for the start of their Star Plus package that we mentioned on a previous show. Now, all the Star Plus package is all the Fox-related and Hulu products that now are under the Disney umbrella, and they're adding them onto the service for a couple of quid extra per month. And boy, the list is huge. I have still not delved through the full list of everything that's dropping, but I've already marked off quite a lot of (laughs) shows and films that I need to watch. Old favourites that I've seen before, but there's also some new ones. But there's things like new shows. You've got Hellstrom and Big Sky have caught my attention. Yeah, because there's no other chance we'd ever get to see Hellstrom than, than on this service. Exactly. Of the old shows, I mean, obviously there's things like Lost, Family Guy, Burn Notice, Castle, 24, Bones, which I'll be looking forward to delving back into, particularly some of my favourite episodes. But the show's such a scandal that I never watched. There's Blackish that I, I wanted to get into but never found time for. Prison Break, which I never completed, so I'll get a chance to complete it, and so much more. And then when it comes to the films, you've got Australia, Arachnophobia, Braveheart, Deadpool 2, Borat, Cocoon, Nightwatch and Daywatch. I can't wait to rewatch them. Well, it's been some time since I, uh, I visited those. You know, the, on that list so far, the one that leapt out on me was Arachnophobia because I think it was such an underrated and great little... Well, it's not, it's not even quite a horror film, but it's it's it just... It just ticked all the right boxes, but just didn't find an audience. It's a homage to the B-movie era of films. It's a landlocked Jaws is what it is. Cronenberg's The Fly is in there. Love it. One Hour Photo photo is up there. Excellent. I know 
that is an underwatched film. That's one of Robin Williams' strongest performances, and everyone should be seeking that out. Uh, MASH, which we spoke about on our show. We did. Is on there, etc., etc. The list is huge. If you go onto the Disney Plus website, do a search for Disney Plus Star Plus, you'll find a PDF of the, all the content that's dropping there. Now, as soon as it dropped, the first thing that stood out for me, and I've already set up a synchronized watching night for me and a few friends is Kung Pao Enter the Fist. Yes, you mentioned this. Now, um, I'm not sure if you can um, add me to that list yet. And I have seen Kung Pao, but I will watch it again. Uh, just just instantly, when does it when does it drop? So it all drops on the 23rd of February. And that's just the start of what they're dropping because there's a lot of key things. They've got Deadpool 2 on there, but they've not got Deadpool because there's a, I think it might be a Sky or something contract that they've got an exclusivity right. on at the moment. A few f- films and TV shows are caught up in other deals that they've made, but eventually all of the Fox, Disney, etc., Hulu product is all going to come under this one um- umbrella. Well, uh, like I say, I've set up a watch party for the Friday after the launch of it, just so that we can run Kung Pao while talking to each other online and having an absolute laugh watching it. Brilliant. Can't wait. Now, within that list, we did mention Cronenberg with the we fly did. is going on there. Now, I can do segues as well because Cronenberg is teaming up with Vigo Mortensen once more for a new project. Oh, that's good. They've worked together twice before. Yeah. History of Violence and Eastern Promises, both absolutely brilliant films. I mean, is there anything that I've watched of Cronenberg that I didn't get some enjoyment from? Probably not. Okay, maybe. I've got... Time not now is time for that discussion, but I could have a discussion. <laughs> but but two of my all-time favorite movies are Cronenberg movies, which is The Fly and Dead Zone. Yes, absolutely. I mean, two good choices there. One of the best Stephen King adaptations to date is Dead Zone. Uh, but the new film that hasn't got a title yet is apparently something that Cronenberg wrote quite a while ago, but never got around to making it. And according to Mortensen, it goes back to his origins. It's like a film noir. And he described it as being a disturbing script, but good. So it sounds like classic old school Cronenberg. Excited to see something come new from Cronenberg. I do think he's got a great vision. I know that some of his stuff uh, does divide audiences and Crash being one of the ones that um, definitely split audiences. Mm. But I've always taken something from every one of his films. So I can't wait to see what he does here. In other news, which was linked to the Disney Plus story... Again, you're segueing. I believe there's some news on a TV series that they're developing for the MCU stable. Well, we've had um, our start with the MCU with uh, WandaVision. It looks as though, just by sort of uh, uh, chatter on on the interweb, that Falcon and Winter Soldier is looming large as being probably the next show. And then, of course, we've got Loki and we've got Hawkeye. But that's not the end of Disney+. Plus. Uh, and a Marvel teaming up because we we know from the Disney Day that we talked about in depth a couple of weeks ago. There's a whole yeah. slew of shows, and one show that didn't get get mentioned, um, and that is Ryan Coogler, who gave us Black Panther, is developing a Wakanda TV series. Know very little about it at this stage. Of course, we don't because it's Marvel, uh, and we probably won't know until there's um, a trailer and um, uh, and, a, and a release date because they are. They are still managing to be super, super secretive over there at, the, uh, at MCU. God bless Feige, as we try to do very often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an Wakanda TV series. Now, there's so much to explore with Wakanda, let alone the Black Panther. There's the Black Panther legacy. There's whatever is going to happen to 
replacing, sadly replacing Chadwick Boseman. So, I, of course, we're looking forward to it. This is a geek show, and we can amply geek out to a, a, a Wakanda TV series. I'm just going with Wakanda Forever as a title, if you want it. I'm throwing it out there. <laughs> Uh, with regards geeking out over superheroes, have you seen the trailer for N- The Nevers? No, I haven't. This is Joss Whedon's um, show, which Joss Whedon cre- um, uh, created and then strangely left his own creation, which is slightly unheard of. Rumours abound as to why he left. No one knows for a fact. But uh, no, I've not seen the trailer. And I know just enough about it to be to colour me intrigued. All I can sum it up to, because I was sat and watched the trailer last night and thoroughly enjoyed what I was seeing. It was very Joss Whedon in its uh, girl focus as the lead heroes in it. But it's basically Victorian X-Men. Okay. Again, colour me intrigued. <laughs> it, it looks great. It's visually striking. And it's got that fun and flippant charm that Whedon's projects tend to have. Looking forward to it coming along. Going to be interesting to see how it goes once it moves past Joss Whedon's involvement. I'm wondering if he's keeping it in-house, though. Is it um, his production company that's produced it, whose name Mutant? Mutant, Mutant Enemy. Um, are they the production company? So is he going to just hand it over to someone in his, in his ranks that he trusts? It is Mutant Enemy who are producing it, so it should at least... Because the latter seasons of Buffy um, moved away from Joss Whedon's direct involvement to Martin Oxen. And she managed to just about keep the feel, a bit misdirected at times, but generally kept the feel. So fingers crossed it will stay in good hands and fingers crossed it will be a success. Let's hope so. I'm I'm a big fan of Joss Whedon. I know I sound very protective about him during this uh, ongoing Fisher Whedon wars and all that, which we've talked about in depth for weeks and weeks and weeks. But I am open to there are both sides to a story and we just seem to be hearing one side at the moment. But I'm not going to get back into into that because as soon as I do, the uh, um, the Twitter world will erupt with either new information or calling me wrong. Let's just let's just quickly go over the GameStop thing that happened last week. Yeah. Now explain GameStop for those of us who are on, aren't as on the ball with GameStop. I mean, clearly I've been following the story, but just just give us a bit of a, a heads up on what GameStop was in your briefest possible way, sir. If you've seen The Big Short, you will know a basic idea of what happened. GameStop being a struggling uh, games company in the US, its stock price had dropped significantly and investors on Wall Street were doing a big short approach. They were betting on GameStop crumbling in order to get a good payout at the end of it. And so over on Reddit, that hive of people with weird ideas... (laughs) Uh, a group decided, hang on, there's some apps that you can get on your phone that enable you to trade in stocks and shares without having to pay a percentage. Because normally if you sell something or buy something, you have to pay the company in, in between a small cut of what you make. So the all says, well, I can put 100 in. Well, I can put 400 in. Right, let's all buy GameStop stock and force the price hike. So they all went on the app and forced, like suddenly GameStop shares are trading. So it's like, wow, something's happening. So the market then started to respond to it and saw the price go up by thousands of percentage over what it was, which meant that all those Wall Street investors who had invest, who had bet tons and tons of money suddenly were making a huge loss because they bet for it to fail. And all of a sudden it's a success. And Wall Street went crazy and said, people shouldn't be allowed to trade and do this kind of thing. It's like, but you do. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the app was um, closed down. It was stopped from being able to do any trading on the major stocks. But as soon as GameStop got took off there for them to trade on, they then went, what about these other stocks? And started like picking out other companies that were hinted at failing by Wall Street. And it was basically all users of Reddit were working to bring down the corrupt, greedy investors of Wall Street. We've seen it shown in so many films. We've seen the aspect of the Wall Street traders manipulating the markets. And it was just hilarious to see them get a taste of their own medicine. Now, it only took a matter of four days from this taking place for MGM to announce that they've snagged the rights to a proposed book which hasn't even been written yet, called The Anti-Social Network, by best-selling author Ben Mesrick, who penned The Accidental Billionaires, which became The Social Network. And they've got the rights to adapt that to film. The book's not written, <laughs> but already they're planning the film for it because they've just gone, whoa, this, is a, this, is, this could be a good story. And here's a guy who penned something which became a great film. Let's be honest, if Sorkin gets himself involved in this, I'm all over it. If he doesn't, I think it's maybe, we've seen this on the big shorts. We don't necessarily need it. It is an interesting situation, but it's one of those things that, I mean, I've described it as clear as I can, but even as I'm describing it, I was like, I'd have to spend about two hours in a lecture to describe exactly how this manipulation of the stock market worked. Uh, Yeah, I've, I've been following it to a degree, not as closely as you have, Andy. And one of the things I did notice was didn't they bet on uh, this this Reddit gang, um, AMC Cinemas? Yes, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, bless them. Bless their little hearts. <laughs> I, I, I just think it's great that because, I mean, let's be honest, the value of shares on the stock market is a bizarre situation. It's not controlled by anyone except for the, the fat cats at Wall Street. And this was just basically showing how ridiculous it is that you put a price on a company based on what someone wants to make out of it who has nothing to do with the company. So Reddit has basically opened up the world to, you know what? These fat cats are making all their money. This is how much it can crumble for them. They should stop dabbling. Uh, But it's an interesting backstory. Is there enough for a film? Well, the big short did it well. So maybe if they take that kind of approach, possibly. And it's it's also interesting that uh, it's not over even though I'm sure many on Wall Street would hope that it was. Yeah, it's I mean, it's still an ongoing story. The, we're still going to see this rattling into effects over the next few months as more and more analysis of the situation and what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed goes on. Very interesting stuff. Um, we've got some sad news as well, haven't we? We have, yes. There's been two major losses over the past week. Uh, I say major losses, both of them had really good innings, but both of them were very dear to us all in film and TV work. First of all, Clovis Leachman. Yeah. Now, Clovis Leachman is probably best remembered for Young Frankenstein as, and dare I say the name, Frere Blucher. Um, yeah, I mean, she had a career on film that included movies such as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Last Picture Show and Young Frankenstein amongst others. And her latter TV work brought her to a new audience. She had appearances on Malcolm in the Middle as the grandmother. She was on The Office, Raising Hope, and more recently in American Gods. Oh, right. I didn't realise she was in American Gods. Yeah, uh, she popped up during season two of American Gods. Uh, and as soon as she, she's one of those people that if you don't recognise the name, you recognise her as soon as she's on screen. She's also provided voice work on films such as The Iron Giant, Ponyo, The Crudes, and Beavis and Butthead. Uh, she's passed away 
at the age of 94. And all I can say is, you know, thank you to her for her contribution towards some iconic roles in some memorable films and TV shows throughout my life. Yeah, absolutely. And um, while I mentioned Young Frankenstein, because it, it's a particular favourite of mine, and, and she's fantastic. She worked with Mel Brooks again, and he, he posted a little message on Twitter, which basically echoed what I just said, um, which even though light was was heartfelt. And also the fact yes. that she was in um, uh, Peter Bodanovich's last picture show, which is a, a, an absolutely favourite of mine, brilliant movie. And she was uh, not only nominated, but she won for Best Supporting Actress. And it's a, it's a fantastic performance. So our condolences to her friends and family. And the other loss is Hal Holbrook, who passed away at the age of 95, with more than six decades of roles, which saw him appear again in some iconic films such as all the president's men magnum force wall street the fog i mean people who love your john carpenter horrors the fog is one that it's not a great film but it's it's a beloved slight misstep uh lincoln capricorn one which is one of my favorite films yeah. of all time the firm and he also grabbed an oscar nomination for into the wild in recent years again this was someone who in his latter career became a familiar face on tv with parts cropping up in shows such as The West Wing, Sons of Anarchy, Grey's Anatomy, Bones, Sopranos, and much more. Again, for people who don't recognise the name, he's another one of those people that as soon as you see him, you recognise the person. Al Holbrook is is just, just an iconic character actor. I don't know if you know that he played Mark Twain for many years on the stage, and that was his sort of his key key role. But all the films that you've mentioned, he was just absolutely superb. And he was one of those actors, uh, even in the smallest of roles, could do absolutely something with and bring something uh, to it. Um, and you mentioned The Fog, and you um, you mentioned Capricorn One. Um, he was in Magnum Force, which is... Uh, out of the Dirty Harry films, it's not necessarily the best. The best one is still Dirty Harry, but it is my favourite for some reason. I don't know why. And he just had, he could do slime ball better than anyone else. He had the ability to bring even to to the slimiest of characters, and he played he played them certainly in Magnum Force, even in Fletch Lives and Capricorn One. Uh, he he always brought an integrity to them, even though they were dastardly characters. You couldn't conceal the charm of the actor behind it. So uh, uh, a fantastic loss and a, and a brilliant, brilliant character actor. And that, as we say, is the news. If you're enjoying the show, and there's probably no reason why you're not, then please hit that subscribe button, uh, leave a review, leave any kind of message, because uh, it's always good to hear from you and give us some ideas of things that maybe you'd like us to deep dive. And we're talking about films here. Let's keep it clean, San Diego. <laughs> um, Andy, how can the folks at home uh, get in touch with us? You can get in touch with us over on Twitter at Filmfile UK. On Instagram, we are Filmfile UK. You might see a theme here. And if you want to send us an email with any thoughts, feedback or suggestions on films you'd like us to explore podcast at filmfile.uk and there you have it so uh over the last couple of weeks as you know well i say a couple of weeks um, i'll start it's that again almost it's now. been a year and i was going to start that again but no it's in fact it's over the year um we're finally coming up to that that date aren't we to be honest when yeah. all this started this lockdown nonsense started the latest um compilation of old reviews just took us straight into the start of the lockdown last year 
Yes, I had a listen to our Highlander review, and boy, do we seem to have... It's only a year ago, but but the show has really moved on, hasn't it, in, in the space of a year. I don't know we, whether we've got better, technology's got better, but it, it, it's, it was sounding good. But I think we're sounding better. Uh, so, yeah, we've not had the chance to get into cinemas. So Andy has thankfully been kept alive by watching more than I could humanly do in a week uh, on, your, on your streaming services, which we will come to. But before that, we have normally at this stage been doing a deep dive into a classic film. We're going to change things around a little bit because we're going to take a deep dive into a classic actor. It was his birthday this week at the ripe old age of 91, and that is the actor, star, uh, a megastar really, uh, character actor, leading man. He's done it all, Gene Hackman. I never wanted to be anything but an actor. George Scott had a, a, a line in Patton uh, that I think is appropriate. God help me, I love it. I truly do. Uh, being at the Palace Theater in my little hometown, my favorite time as a young boy. If I had 40 cents, I could ride the streetcar back and forth, get a bag of popcorn and see a double feature. I was sitting in that movie house the screen would light up and I'd be transported to darkest Africa and swing from the trees with Johnny Weissmuller, dive to the depths of the ocean with Ray Milan and John Wayne, ride the Santa Fe Trail or fly wingman with Errol Flynn, or walk side by side with my favorite, James Cagney. I somehow or another, I, I knew that there were people behind all of that dream making but I chose to believe that this was happening for the first time for me on that screen on that Saturday afternoon. I watched in fascination as films like DeMille's The Buccaneer or Union Pacific unfolded before me. Just a couple of miles from where we are this evening, uh, Cecil B. DeMille helped to create The Squall Man in 1914, and that was the beginning of feature films as we know them. I'm honored and proud to be this year's recipient of the Cecil B. DeMille Award. I want to thank the Hollywood Foreign Press, all of you. And um, there's a line that I, I always wanted to say, top of the world, Ma, top of the world. So Gene Hackman, born in 1930, is now a retired leading actor. He's also a novelist, which I didn't know. He's won two Academy Awards, four Golden Globes, one Screen Actors Guild, and two BAFTAs. He's played such iconic characters as Jimmy Popeye Doyle, Little Bill Daggett, Lex Luthor. Uh, is nominated for Best Supporting Actor in the film Bonnie and Clyde, I Never Sang for My Father, and a second Best Actor nomination for Mississippi Burning. He's had more films than I, I can even care to mention, and every film that he's in, no matter how great the finished movie is, Gene Hackman is always brilliant in them. And so what we decided to do is to pick our favourite Gene Hackman performances. Um, Andy, where do we go? Where do you start with trying to find a, a, a favourite Gene Hackman performance? I'll start with the film that first made me spot Gene Hackman. And whilst you would have thought that it would have been something that we've spoken about on the show before, Superman, I first spotted Gene Hackman in the Poseidon Adventure on TV. 
I've got to agree with you. I think that's my first go-to of, of knowing about Gene Hackman from from the Poseidon Adventure in 1972 film, uh, Irwin Allen film. Um, one of those star-studded films like Towering Inferno, which just had a had a huge list of, of um, A-list actors in. Uh, and even against all those A-list actors, Gene Hackman stood out. And in probably it's a bit of a strange role for him because he'd done, he'd done films like uh, The French Connection around that time. This was a sort of a film which cast him in sort of a, a lead action role to a degree. I remember at me, it would have been about 77 when it was on TV that I watched it. And that was the time that I was becoming more aware of films as a young, young child, because that was the same year that Star Wars had an impact on us. But I remember sitting watching it and that's the film that made me love disaster movies. It drew me into it. And I remember, I, I remember his character. I, and his, his sacrifice towards the end, spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen the film, it's <laughs> almost 50 years old. <laughs> uh, but it's such a great example of the disaster genre. And it show, it it was the first time that it's, you know, when you're at a young age and you suddenly start to identify an actor for the first time. Because it was from seeing him in that, that when I saw the clips of the following year's Superman film coming out, and I saw the character of Lex Luthor, I put two and two together and realized it's the same person. Right. That was the impact on me from such an early age of such a great actor. Uh, but we've, we've mentioned it, but Superman has to be possibly one of my favorite films. Well, film performances over the series of films that he cropped up in. Gene Hackman is Lex Luthor. I love the fact that he wasn't bald. Yes, he didn't because... want to do the. He didn't want to shave his head, and he wasn't comfortable doing the uh, uh, the bald wig for the for the movie. Um, but it's it's interesting thing. I mean, I, I agree with you, and, and my love for Superman the movie is 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 well recorded on this uh, on this series. Even though we've never done a deep dive on it, it's not a role that you would you would absolutely think of initially as a Gene Hackman role. And, and the fact the fact that he plays it for laughs, plays it very broad, and we've not really seen him do. Comedy and yes, I know he played the blind man in Young Frankenstein. Yeah, um, but you know, you compare this to the, the roles he played in, in Bridge Too Far or French Connection or French Connection Two, for that matter. This wasn't what you would expect expect him to do. And you know what? He he's my Lex Luthor, and I never thought yes. I'd like him because I, I've never really liked campy humor. Uh, and those are the elements of Superman the movie which make it campy. But the more I watch his performance in it. Um, the more I enjoy his Lex Luthor. And um, even though it's a million miles away now from the comics, and I guess it was it was similar to the comics at the time, uh, to the Kurt Swan, uh, Car uh, Carrie Bates style of comic. But um, he made a fantastic Lex Luthor. And in Superman 2, where he's a double-dealing Lex Luthor, uh, again, is he, phenomenal. He did reprise the role in the best-forgotten um, 1987 Superman 4 um, which many questions as to why did it get made and, and how come Gene Hackman uh, did it? They must have paid him a ton load of money to, to reprise that role. See, the thing is, I mean, you, you said that he was a kind of a campy portrayal, but I think it towed the line nicely to not be overly camp. It played it to a bit of jokey aspect, but there was some, he approached it in a serious kind of manner. He was still menacing. Don't get me wrong. I still think he was menacing as Lex Luthor, uh, but in uh, but he he did it in such a slight. And he, and what he did is he brought tons and tons of charm to it. He was a consummate professional in everything that he did, and he always brought his A game. It's 
you look at other actors of his generation or of like the generations that followed and he's the one who I can't think of anything that is a blip on his record that he should be embarrassed about. I think that he gave everything that he could into every role and never took anything just as a, ah, well, this will pay the bills kind of job. Whereas you get people like De Niro who, let's be honest, the past two decades haven't been good for him. No, no. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he ever reached that self-mockery level that, that De Niro has, you know, because I think he's he's never been that kind of an actor. He's always been solid. Uh, sometimes not even flashy, but it always been solid. I mean, you know, so for me, one of the great classic Hackman roles is The French Connection. You can't not mention the uh, 1971 William Friedkin movie uh, based on the real life New York Police Department detective uh, Jimmy Popeye Doyle. It's a fantastic performance. It's edgy. It's tough. Uh, he brings humanity to it. Um, it's just a just an absolute stunning performance. And interestingly enough, it was the uh, sequel, French Connection 2, which is, which is not bad. It's not as great as, as French Connection and, and, and does, does follow on the story perfectly. But it's the French Connection 2, which he, he received the nomination for. French Connection was one of my overlooked classics that I finally got round to watching last year. And yeah, it's an absolutely cracking film. And it's one of those films that it's... It was always on my radar to get around to watching, but I could never find time to watch it. And I'm so pleased that I did because I saw such a great performance with him. Uh, I've said many times my love for Westerns and Hackman had a few appearances in Westerns over the years. One of my favourite films that he was in is the Clint Eastwood Western, The Unforgiven. Absolutely superb. Absolutely superb choice. Little Bill Daggett and he gets to play the menace throughout I mean, he he had, he had that kind of menace in another Western, uh, another one of my favourite Westerns of modern years, uh, Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, mm. where he plays like a corrupt landowner who runs the town. But in Unforgiven, he plays it completely brutal, whereas in The Quick and the Dead, he plays it kind of menacing, but with a jokey side to it. And it shows the two different aspects of pretty much the same role that he could bring to something. But The Unforgiven is such a powerful film. And I've got that to rewatch because I'm going to be working through the Clint Eastwood films as my next my next plan. So I'm looking forward to getting round to Unforgiven because it has been a good while since I last seen it. But I remember when I first watched it and there's that scene when he, well, well he brutally beats someone to a pulp out in the street. Yeah. And that, when I first saw that on the big screen, it just shook me. It was so powerful, and he just flipped from being like casual menace to full-on you are psycho menace. He, he played the role because a, he was menacing, and and we never forgot that he was human as well as that character. Uh, it was a person who was flawed, and not necessarily. It, it, it's, it's said many times that the bad guys in movies don't know they're the bad guys are the heroes of his own film, and I I think that character was the hero of his own film. And that's down a testament to, to the acting skills of Hackman. And when he is menacing, he's, he's, he's just superb. He's, he's, he's scarily real. I mean, there's so many, as we said, to choose from. And, uh, and we said we pick three each. I think we're both going to agree on the next one. But I, I mean, there's, there's so many that you, you've just got to mention. I love No Way Out, the film he did with Kevin Cosner. It's a superb film, and he plays it. He plays it wonderfully. You mentioned Quick and the Dead, where it was again excellent in in that sort of revisionist western by Sam Raimi. Loved him in Crimson Tide, yeah, uh, alongside uh, Denzel Washington. 
he stood out for me in films such as The Firm, yep. Mississippi Burning. Uh, we've mentioned Young Frankenstein, but we've also got, he was in Wyatt Earp, another great Western. And he showed some comedy chops in The Birdcage, which for me it is one of those examples of a film that when translated to a Western audience for a new version, worked better than the original. Uh, no, I absolutely agree with you, Dan. It's uh, it's a bit more grounded. So uh, yes, he, he could he could do comedy, um, and to some extent, I think he did comedy and Get Shorty as well, uh, opposite um, John Travolta when he played the movie director um, Harry Zim, if I remember correctly. Yep. But the film that we both sort of agreed upon, and 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 this, as I said, there are absolutely tons and tons of great Gene Hackman performances. And I think we're both going to agree with the Royal Tenenbaums. Definitely. Uh, my love for Wes Anderson films is well known. And Royal Tenenbaums is not only one of Wes Anderson's best films, but Hackman is absolutely magnificent throughout. Uh, he is. Um, I think it is my favourite. It's my. It's not necessarily the funniest um, um Wes Anderson film, it's not, it's probably not his most creative Wes Anderson film. Uh, it is the start of him being Wes Anderson for me, more yeah. so than, uh, than Bottle Rocket and, um, Rushmore. and Rushmore. But it is grounded by that central performance by, by Gene Hackman as the eccentric father of the uh, Tenenbaum clan. Um, who left them in their adolescence and then returns after they've all grown up, false to claiming first to have a terminal illness and then working out to reconciliate his relationship with his, his grown-up children and his ex-wife, played by Angelica Houston. And uh, again, a complicated character. You could say that the film is played for laughs, um, but it's not. It's a drama with comedy, or is it a comedy with drama? It has uh, a certain whimsy to it, which all Anderson films does. But it's it's Gene Hackman at his very best, just proving everything he can do. And according to Anderson, uh, when they were casting Gene Hackman, he says it was written for him against his wishes. <laughs> and, um, you know, they did consider other people. Uh, apparently, Hackman was reluctant to take the role. They, they considered Michael Caine. But Gene Hackman was just the absolute perfect choice. And once he was in, apparently everything else fell into, uh, all, all the other cast fell into place. Absolutely marvellous film. Uh, Hackman's been largely retired from film since 2004's Welcome to Mooseport. He has provided documentary voiceover work since, but he made the decision after Tenenbaums and Mooseport that, you know what, it's time to sit back and just enjoy life. It's incredible to think we've not seen him on a big screen, really, for uh, since 2004. You know, um, coming up to 20 years without Gene Hackman on the screen is, is, is sad. But, we, you know, he's left the cinema to retire. And, and let's hope there's more years in him yet with such an amazing body of work. And, and I think everybody, if you're not necessarily the ones that we've chosen, everybody should have a favourite Gene Hackman performance and a, a favourite film that has Gene Hackman in. I think it goes without saying that if you've got a, any sort of a film fan, they'll be in your top 10, one movie that, that features Gene Hackman. And no matter what, he'll be absolutely fantastic in it. Okay, so Andy, you've um, you've done better than me over the last week of uh, uh, of staying in and watching um, uh, watching the streaming services. I've been a bit a bit remiss. I've not had a movie in me. I don't know why. I think it's um, as we've talked about before. I'm, I'm I'm not getting to grips with this particular lockdown. It's not been my favourite in the series. Um, 
so I've had a tendency to deal more with TV, and um, I've got a couple of TV choices I've, I've gone through. But thankfully, because we are a film show, <laughs> you're going to talk about some of the films that you've been watching over the last uh, last week. Yes, uh, you say thankfully, but when you hear my responses to two of them, you'll go, <laughs> "Oh, actually, you had the easier option." Uh, the first one I mentioned, we mentioned this as something that I was keeping my eye on for, which was Twist. If singing, dancing, and happy endings is your thing then you're watching the wrong version of this story. People don't really call me Oliver anymore. They call me The higher up I put my work, the more people can see it. It's you, isn't it, doing all this? Come with us. We'll still go with some new gear. I am Dodge. This is Batesy, and together we... You saved Ross once already. It's a real hero, that one. Fagan, this is Twist. I thought we could train him up. He needs someone who can keep up with him. So why did you get into free running then? So I could escape from boys called Oliver Twist. It's called surviving. Now, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Oliver. I know you're pulling a job. I want in. Dr. Crispin Losburn. He's the seller of one of six paintings by William Hogarth. He took everything from me, everything, and I'm going to return the favor. We're on. My kids are not disposable. That's exactly what they are. Be careful who you trust, because people only see what they want to see. Suspect headed West Fury! That was our one shot. It was a simple plan. Give me an excuse to kill you. You can't kill all of us. You better pray this time it goes like clockwork. It's what we do to survive. appeared as a Sky original this past weekend. It's a modern-day take on the Oliver Twist tale that has a lot of promise, a decent lineup of names involved. Including Michael Caine, I believe. Including Michael Caine's in there. But the production value of a half-hour TV show stretched to a feature film. It has an unhealthy fascination with free-running for some reason, about a decade and a half after everyone else has stopped thinking it's cool. Uh, the, the film sees Rafferty Law, yes, that Law, the son of a certain Jude. right. And he looks the spitting image of him. But he plays Oliver Twist, whose mother encourages his lover's art of art and his own skill. And when she passed away, he lives on the streets, making his mark literally as a notorious graffiti artist called Twist. Whilst free running across rooftops because, hey, we still do that in 2021. Uh, when fleeing the law one day, he encounters a few other street smart youths and is invited to join them at Fagan's lockup. Rita Ora plays Dodge. Sophie Simmet is Red or the Nancy character. And Sykes is played gender swapped by Lena Headey, okay. as menacingly as we've come to expect from her these days. Remember her in dread. Albeit somewhat pantomime at times. Michael Caine plays Fagan and is and he's not just phoning the part in this time, but he's more he sent it via fax. <laughs> it is <laughs> and I've found this is a problem that I have with Michael Caine recently, and it was all brought to attention when I watched this that pretty much all of his films over the past decades that he's been in, I found like he's struggling to remember his lines, 
and is cl- clearly quite embarrassed to be involved in the films that he's in. The only time he doesn't do that is in Nolan films. I think he... Um... Yeah, he, he gives everything for the Nolan films, but everything else that he does, he just looks out of place because he looks like he doesn't really want to be there. I remember him on in Kingsman. Yeah. In Kingsman, he just... You were like, well, I get why they put him in here, and I get it would have been good, but it looks like he got forced against his will to be in this film. <laughs> um, the concept of the film is good. The cast are varied, and bizarrely, Rita Ora isn't the worst of the bunch. When you're talking about a, that's Ruby Rose level of yeah, you're talking about acting skills. You've just you've just pulled a rose. <laughs> uh, Lena Headey is is marvellous, even though she does toe the line of pantomime. She is really menacing, and she plays this kind of menacing streak quite well these days. But the production value of this whole production let it all down. And despite the core plot being a decently thought-out heist movie set around the art world, it fails to ignite any sparks, and it ends up being a totally flat experience. It's a shame, really, because it feels that if it was in better hands, there could have been a really solid film here. But as it stands, it's yet another lacklustre Sky original to add to the pantheon of lacklustre Sky originals. I mean, I'm not going to spend any time on this more than we have to, but do you think it would have made a better TV series than a, a one-off? Well, I saw some people comment online that they were surprised that it's not a TV series because it felt like a pilot episode. Right. And I kind of got that is that it had such TV production values that it didn't work as a film. Like I say, it was like half an hour's worth of production values being stretched over one and a half hours. If they had just done a 45-minute pilot episode like this, I'd have maybe stuck around for a few more episodes. But as it stands, it was like, oh, well, you tried, guys, but just walk away from it now. Walk away. What else have you got? Anything better than Twist? Uh, Well, um, Irresistible. Jack could be the real deal. He's a cross between MacArthur and Elk Jerky and one of those machines that test grip strength. Whatever you say, nerd. It's good to see you. Yeah. You look fat. From writer-director John Stewart. I like being behind the camera more than in front of it. And cut. Because when I wear makeup, I like to do it for fun. Get ready for the most irresistible comedy event of the summer. What do you think of that right there? Sorry, not you, Dot. From Focus Features. Why do we accept that this is the way the media and political parties spend money? What do you think? Give me And who's really benefiting? Because it's not the average person. Making it rain. This seems a bit crazy. I would just like people to think about that. If they want to. All you have is fear. Winnie Buck says I do better with fear than you do with shame. It's Corel versus Bird. I'm going to make a big deal of this. You're going to lose, and then you're going to look like a giant asshole. Oh, I hate her so much. We have this incredible rivalry. Yeah, we hate each other. She's terrifying. No worries. I'm in politics. I'm already dead inside. Irresistible. Quiet the cows, please! And if you could get some of them to face front! Now, Irresistible is directed by John Stewart of The Daily Show. And it stars Steve Carell, Chris Cooper, Mackenzie Davis, Topher Grace and Rose Byrne. Some good names in there. I remember this uh, during its production because um, due, due to its cast, there was such a, a good cast and a, and a director I wanted to see work. However, when the film got released, it didn't amass great reviews. So are you going to tell me those reviews were right or uh, were they talking nonsense? The reviews were kind of right. The film is a political satire set just after the 2016 presidential election. Steve Carell plays a Democratic campaign consultant called Gary Zimmer, who spies an opportunity to grab the heartland vote that 
the Democrats struggle with by way of retired Marine Colonel Jack Hastings, who did a video basically extolling everything he sees wrong with the system. They, they plan to use the character played by Chris Cooper to entice the locals as part of the upcoming election for mayor for the small town as a Democrat candidate. So he sets off to the town of Deer Lake and encounters the culture shock between his life in Washington, D.C. and the small backwater community. Plenty of opportunity for hilarity within there. And pretty soon, the, the simple mayor race hots up as the opposing campaign coordinator for the Republicans, Faith Brewster, played marvellously by Rose Byrne, arrives and the campaign spirals out of ridiculous control. It's a satire of all the interfering and the spin doctoring that goes on around elections. And whilst everyone involved in it plays it really well the names are really good the acting is pretty spot on the problem is the great comedy material that there is to mine within the concept and the small town election aspect has been done many times before to reasonable effect right and it feels too safe at times it takes a swing at the politics but misses by a fraction each time and maybe the fact that the past four years of real life have felt like a political satire doesn't help when you're watching something and going well, actually, that's more believable than anything else when they're supposed to be mocking how ridiculous things get. It doesn't quite work. It feels like it's not got any particular direction going on to it. And it feels like the, the, the spitballing ideas on the spot rather than working to something. A disappointing one, given the names involved and the, the reviews that criticised it when it got released. Yeah, I can kind of see why. You've just nailed everything that I've, I'd read about it. And, 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 and to be honest, uh, it did put me off. There, there's a, you know, a great cast in there. No way of, of denying that. Um, but as you said, it's, it's very hard now to do uh, political satire in a world which is, 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 is satirizing itself on a daily basis. It feels like if this had been released 10 years ago, it might have made more of an impact. Um, Even if it had been released just after the 2016 election, it might have had an, an impact. But it's the fact that the, there's been four years since where things have just spiraled further and further into ridiculous reality that it makes it just feel out of date. Yeah, that's disappointing. Um, I'm going to I'm going to offer you something now um, because I've not watched much in the way of movies, but I know you like your sci-fi, uh, and I know you like your TV. So I'm going to offer you a series called Resident Alien, which started on Sky One just last week. So we're now uh, two episodes in, and I've just caught the first episode as of this recording. Uh, do you remember a, a lovely series uh, back in the 90s called Northern Exposure? About a, about a city doctor who makes his way uh, to an Alaskan town uh, and has to deal with the slight oddities of, of this particular Alaskan town. It had... Uh, it was like a, almost like a feel-good uh, Twin Peaks, can I say that? It was, it was odd at times. It had its heart always in the right place, and it was just a lovely, lovely series. Well, to some extent, this is what they've taken. It's based on a Dark Horse comic, which I've not read and know very little about. It follows uh, a crash-landed alien who's become known as Harry after taking on the identity of a small-town Colorado doctor, who slowly begins to wrestle with the moral dilemma of what it's like to be an alien and making his way through civilization while the dilemma of his secret mission on earth, which at this stage 
looks quite apocalyptical. It's it's a pleasant watch. As I said, I'm only into the pilot episode. And of course, like all pilot episodes, it has to find its feet. There were some points where it was really funny, others where you could see that it's where it's going and it was building traction. But it was genuinely likable. Genuinely likable because it's well directed by David Dobkin, who uh, directed The Wedding Crashers. But it's down to its star. Um, the great and, and no... Body in Genre has not seen anything that doesn't star this particular actor, Alan Tudyk. Now, you'll know Alan Tudyk from Firefly and Serenity. Um, he was in Doll's House. He has that connection with Joss Whedon. You'll know his voice from Wreck-It Ralph and uh, Rogue One. And he just has so much charm. And he's, he just oozes charm. And he oozes great comedy timing. I pretty much figured out where I think this series is going to go. I was um, nicely surprised. It's not particularly taxing. It's an hour easily spent, but it's an, an hour easily spent with a likable premise and a definitely a likable leading man. I've got my eye on it because I had heard from someone else that they they checked it out to see what it was and are really looking forward to seeing how it plays out. So it's on my shortlist and I'll probably binge the first couple of episodes tomorrow. Yeah, give it a go. Uh, my recommendation of the week, though, is something that I didn't think would be my recommendation of the week. All right, then. That's Netflix's The Dig. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes, but with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. What are they? We're standing in someone's graveyard, I reckon. Viking? Oh, maybe older. Mr. Brown is an archaeologist. Well, I'm an excavator. You've come to dig up the mounds. So you think there's something beneath? Who are those men? They're from the museum. Ye gods! This is pretty. I think you'd better come and see. Why would anyone want to bury a ship? I'd expect this is a grave of a, a warrior or a king. But there's more. There's much more. War's looming. All hands are on deck to excavate before hostilities begin. The Dark Ages are no longer dark. Everyone's going to want a piece, and this is your find. Why else would you be playing around in the dirt while the rest of the country prepares for war? That means something, doesn't it? From the first human handprint on a cave wall, we're part of something continuous. Life is very fleeting. I've learned that. Would you have dinner with me? Yes. It has moments you should seize. A man could dig the earth his whole life through. Not find anything like I've discovered here. Spirit steady, Mr. Brown. We're coming towards the edge of the atmosphere. You say the word, and I'll dig. I've been debating whether this is the movie for me, and I need you to convince me. I thought exactly the same. It's a period piece set on the cusp of World War II, which tells the story behind the finding of the Sutton Woo Mounds and the forgotten archaeologist amateur who started the dig, only to have the British Museum to take the credit from him. It's drawn from the novel by John Preston, and it takes a few liberties with recorded events of the actual excavation. 
but provides an engaging drama that really captured my attention within the first 10 minutes. The background story, landowner and widow Edith Perry hires the self-taught amateur archaeologist Basil Brown to examine the mounds on her land when the museum that she's approached declines to come along. The initially difficult and curmudgeonly Brown begins to warm to Edith and her son after a landfall requires he rest up in her home to recover. And once he unearths the first remains, the British Museum suddenly get interested in the project and the Office of Work sends Charles Phillips to run the excavation, bringing in a team which includes Peggy Piggott and her husband Stuart. Now, what works with this film is whilst the story itself, you think, oh, wow, well, we know about what they found in the Sutton Mounds and what story is there to tell here. That's not the important story. It's the characters' journeys that is the important one. Right. It's the casting makes it, and the characters are so believable and honestly portrayed with liberties that you just can't help but engage. Ray Fiennes as Basil is absolutely. I, it, Ray Fiennes, I find that even if he's in absolute rubbish, he which he, he has really been stands out. I mean, he was in the Avengers. I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) But he's always a strong presence. And in this, he's a very strong presence, adding a crack of warmth to an otherwise stern exterior character. Kerry Mulligan. Now, there's controversy over she's being cast because she's only just past the age of 30. And she's being cast as a 56-year-old woman, as Lady Edith. But I don't care because she is absolutely magnificent. She's trying to maintain her grace in the role of Lady Edith while suffering with ill ill health. And it gives her as an actress a chance to show her range completely. And boy, does she show range in this film. Lily James and Ben Chaplin are the awkward couple with a hidden secret, which provides some emotional drama alongside the excavation itself. And that's the important thing, is it's all about characters around this dig site going on and their lives and how their lives change over the course of this taking place. Whilst the dig itself is a fascinating slice of historical fiction, it's the emotional core that really grabbed me. And the looming presence of war that is on the horizon throughout the film sells it completely and really gives it a sense of foreboding menace in the distance. Whilst at the same time, the film is an absolutely charmingly engaging, heartfelt drama. Well, I'll tell you what, Andy, you've sold it to me. I'm not one for period pieces, but I found this to just be an absolute pleasure to watch. Thoroughly recommend it. Great. That's it kind of for the reviews. I'm just going to mention very, very quickly one more, which sprung to mind, which is a TV series, which ended, I think it was uh, last year. But with the world that we live in, it doesn't matter anymore because it's all on Netflix. And that's the TV adaptation of a series of unfortunate events, the Lemony Snicket stories, uh, which was absolutely superb and and very, very cinematic. Of course, it was cinematic because it had uh, Barry Sonnenfeld and Bo Welsh helming many of the episodes. And it had that Barry Sonnenfeld look that one would associate with his his films like uh, Men in Black and uh, The Addams Family. It's a joy. It's a little bit repetitive, but it's, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it as a kid series, and I love the style of it, and I love the darkness to it. Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf, um, much better than the Jim Carrey version. Uh, Patrick Warburton as, as Lemony Snicket. Patrick Warburton as one of those voices that you can listen to all the time. The kids were great, and there were some fantastic um, appearances from um, some very well-known actors, including uh, Nathan Fillion, Kobe Smulders, John Cusack, and Richard E. Grant, just among many others that also included the great Catherine O'Hara. So a fantastic series. You want to sit down with something for the entire family, but want something a little bit darker, 
I can't recommend the whole three seasons enough. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely on that. I absolutely loved them. And I'm probably going to go back to rewatch them again at some point because I had so much fun. Can we? We need to just do a quick mention of episode four of WandaVision. We did. And now I, I was going to be controversial with this. Um, so we got to episode four, WandaVision. Episode five lands on Friday on Disney+. Plus. What did you think and where did episode four take us? Episode four, I, I enjoyed it because even though it was basically... This was the point of the show which it goes, okay, all you people who aren't getting it yet, we're going to explain it to you. Yeah. And so it flipped it out into the real world. And we got to see the events that were taking place outside this dome that were getting hinted at throughout the sitcom episodes. Now, I, I enjoyed it because I enjoyed seeing this other mix of characters coming in. And I particularly love Jimmy Woo. I think Jimmy Woo as a character needs to get his own spin-off show. I agree. Totally I agree. Love, I loved that when he presented his card, with his details, he did the card trick, making it appear from thin air that he'd been practicing in the Ant-Man films. <laughs> I absolutely love little nuggets of bits and pieces of the MCU in there. Yes, it didn't provide me any new information, but I got what this episode was. This was, we've had an hour of build-up and mystery and intrigue, and this was the punch reveal, here you go, and now they can move forwards. And I've noticed the comments online is people who weren't sold on the show are now sold on the show again. Now, uh, I, I, everything you said, I agree with. When I watched it, uh, I was less enamoured, but then I spent time working it through. And, and I, I get that they had to go somewhere else with it because if they just keep repeating the format of, of comedy, uh, sitcom, uh, which they were doing really, really well, then that would have started to become really, really tired after a bit. And I know they'll go back to it, but now they've got license. They've they've earned earned it to go back, if you know what I mean. So you needed something to give away. This isn't Lost, because the infuriating thing about Lost is you, you answered one question. Well, actually, no, you didn't answer one question. You just asked <laughs> lots and lots of new questions. And I think that, that was always the, the worry of every week, are you going to just find this little snippet of information? Uh, but boy, it must, have, um, it must have knocked some of the theorists uh, on their head, like everybody coming up who the beekeeper was. Is it Mephisto? Is it such and such a character? No, it was just a guy who <laughs> just ended up. Um, there's still much more intrigue. At this stage, it looks like that it's, uh, and spoilers, it looks like Wanda's behind it all. But I think I'm that's sure a bit that's... red having in this direction. Yeah, exactly. I don't think they're going to give that away now. But it's also proved that she's what a powerful character that she is, and 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 puts it into category when you look back at her her stories in the other movies. You know, she um, she was given powers uh, because she was fed a lie. She uh, she lost her brother. Um, she had to make a choice between uh, Cap and and the Avengers. She lost Vision. Uh, and that shot of Vision in in his deathly state was was Ooh. absolutely like a horror movie. The way that played out. So at first, I, I felt disappointed by it. Uh, I thought it was a good episode. I, I thought at first it was unnecessary to to see the other side of the pack. Uh, then I lived with it, and the more I lived with it, the more I liked it. So probably when we said we're going to cover One Division this week, I was a little bit on on middle ground and and not as uh, not as bowled over as literally the the rest of. Um, uh, the fan base seems to have been, but this was the episode where they upped the game and there were so many interesting Easter eggs. And it made me think that, probably wrongly so, that if we're going to move into Doctor Strange, then Wanda could potentially be the big bad in that. So just a quick mention of what I'm going to be lo looking out for over the next weekend. Uh, Birds of Prey lands on 
Sky Movies and Now TV this weekend. And I'm looking forward to revisiting that film because I had so much fun watching it. Uh, Villains lands on Sky Movies, which is a film that sees Bill Skarsgård and Makia Munro as criminals on the run who accidentally stumble on the scene of another crime and find their own lives in peril. And on Netflix, this is one that so many people have been speaking about, and that's the Zendaya and John David Washington starring Malcolm and Marie. I heard good things about that. The drama which follows a filmmaker and his girlfriend as they return home from a premiere. And then as they await the response to the screening, the evening starts to take a turn when revelations about their relationships begin to surface. I'm hearing good things and no doubt it will be a feature of the reviews next week. Excellent. Okay, um, that's about it for this week. And we'll be back next week with more reviews, more news, etc. But before we go, this is something that we like to do. Um, Let's have a look at what we've enjoyed, read, played, geeked out to. What neat thing has been your neat thing over the last week, Andy? I've worked through the latest series of Mark Commode's Secrets of Cinema, which is all available on BBC iPlayer now. In it, he covers cult films, he covers British comedy, and he covers pop music films. And as always with Commode, I don't always agree with what he says, but I'm fascinated with his insight into it. And it's a great little insight into those particular genres of films that, Anyone who's a fan of film should watch. You should watch his Secrets of Cinema. You should then seek out all the films that he references within it, despite how hard it is to get them and how much of a backlog of films you've got. I've now added on, as a result, about 20 more films that I need to get around to watch this year. Uh, Great series. If you've never caught any of his Secrets of Cinema, he just delves into the staples that make up each of the genres. So when he spoke about rom-coms, he went through like the, the cute meat etc etc the music score how they create a template that the films work on so get that checked out all three episodes are on bbc iplayer now okay my neat thing has been a comic read um the collected series from dark horse and and we talked about this a couple of weeks back that dark horse has been very good at, at, at taking original unseen scripts uh, and turning them into comic adaptations. And they did Planet of the Apes, which I talked about. They did The Star Wars, the original George Lucas um, script that became eventually Star Wars that we knew. Uh, and recently they did uh, Alien. Now, I've been on a bit of an Alien kick recently, and that's never a bad thing. What they've done is they've gone back to the original Dan O'Bannon story, uh, which doesn't feature any of the characters that we recognize from the final movie. Um, it bears uh, very little resemblance in some ways to, to the story, and but yet you see the influence absolutely all over it and see where they took future drafts uh, and, and how they how they work that in. It's, it's a really, really good, good read, and Dark Horse have been fantastic about this. The artwork's excellent, and what they've done is they've tried to pitch it at those who pretended in a world that you never saw the Ron Cobb drawings or you never saw any of the early uh, illustrations. So the alien doesn't look like the alien that we know. The characters look like nothing that, that we've seen before. The ship looks like that. And they've adapted the original script. And I think it's a great idea. And I'd love to see Dark Horse do a ton more of these um, because it's such a fantastic, uh, of almost what if, what if we'd have got that, that version as, as opposed to the one that we know and love. So that's uh, my neat thing. The Dan O'Bannon original script adapted to comics by Dark Horse Comics. Fantastic. And that's it for this week. Hopefully we'll be back uh, this time next week. But I couldn't have done this show without the man on the end of the mic, 
Mr. Andrew Meakin. Although, at the same time, I can't do it without you being there because uh, otherwise I'll be talking to myself. Yes, and that would feel very strange. (laughs) Have a good week, Andy. And you, mate. Look forward to seeing whatever you're reviewing. And remember, it's amazing that that brain can generate enough power to keep those legs moving. 